We are in a series at the moment, Kingdom Mandates from the Mount. And our inspiration for this is the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew chapter 5, verse, uh, sorry, chapter 5 and through to chapter 7. And uh, we're looking at the way of life according to the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated. And, uh, and we're looking at that in contrast with the way the Jews were doing their kingdom thing. We know that there was a number of ways this was being approached and the Sermon on the Mount speaks into those things. We've looked at the three first Beatitudes, blessed for being poor in spirit. We've talked about being blessed for mourning and blessed for meekness. And today, because of time and because of the meat of what I've got here, we have to get right into it and look at our very next Beatitude today. It's um, Matthew 5 verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This is the next element of a blessed and happy life, according to Jesus. After you realize your spiritual emptiness, and you gain the kingdom in return. After mourning our sinful state and finding reconciled comfort in the kingdom. And after repentance and taking a meek stance before God and knowing that the fully realized kingdom on a new earth will be our inheritance. Jesus now says, turn your attention to the way you are nourishing your soul. Now, in context, this sermon is a call to turn away from all human agendas to embrace the kingdom one. It's a call to repent from, you know, from a new king and it's got a militant tone to it. In practice for the Jews, it was a call away from works and law and entering a way that only the Holy Spirit can empower us to do. But it's also beginning to sound like the journey that we call salvation, isn't it? All of a sudden, the first three Beatitudes are very much salvation and regeneration related. Isn't it good to... I find that we don't interact enough with the red letters when it comes to understanding salvation. We've got Romans Road worked out. We've got Paul's idea of salvation. We've got justification through faith and all that sort of stuff. But we don't interact all that much with the red letters when it comes to salvation. What did Jesus say? How did Jesus talk about getting saved? How did Jesus talk about getting into the kingdom? At this point of the Beatitudes, once we've gotten through the realization of a poverty-stricken spirit, all those different things, they're steps because after the first, the first result of the first beatitude is what? Theirs is the kingdom of God. Something new is taking place. So the first one is about entering the kingdom. And then we go through a journey of regeneration. We mourn our old life. We empty ourselves of our own power. That's what meekness is. It's appropriate power under restraint. We empty ourselves of our power. And we go, you know what? It's not about me fighting the world or me fighting God. It's the spirit coming into me now. And when we've got those first three Beatitudes done, when we engage with those first three Beatitudes, 
when we clear a lot of us out of the way, we're going to get hungry again. There's going to be a new appetite. There's going to be an appetite that will come up within us. And I'm going to put to you this morning that this is often the big hurdle in the spiritual growth of believers, both newbies and the long-timer who hasn't ventured into the level that the Scriptures tell us we can be. Sometimes churches are to blame for that. We can be all about getting the salvation moments and the responses of the older calls, getting salvation things done and dusted. Hey, you're in the kingdom now. Awesome. Hands raised. Here's your little new Christian booklet. We'll leave you to your own devices. Sometimes the church hasn't worked out how to get people forward from there and that's what the elementary study is all about. Not just so that we know how to go forward but so we can teach others how to go forward. This part of the Beatitudes, this part of the Sermon on the Mount, we're only a few verses in. This is the bit where a believer is challenged to go hard or go home. And the hard or home outcome is based firmly in where we direct our appetite once our lives get cleaned up. The world will try to call us back to sample its wares. And at this point, a lot of believers will go home as a result. But Jesus offers a very different sort of banquet. Instead of sin and its consequences, he challenges us, he calls us to hunger and thirst. In other words, develop a new craving and a new affection for an entity called righteousness. Biblical righteousness is spoken of in three key ways. First, it's spoken of as a legal position before God. It's used in a legal tense style. In Jesus' time, there was an old way and a new way of getting to that position. The contrast is, in fact, in, Romans, in Paul's work in Romans 9. He actually talks about the contrast of grace versus the way the Jews were going about it. That's what it says. What then shall we say, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it? A righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it, as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, CLA and Zion, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based in knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. We've got a contrast there. The Jews were taught by the Pharisees to pursue a standing of righteousness before God by the works of the law. 
And the tighter the law-keeping and the more stringent and disciplined they were in behaviour and ritual, the more righteous they would become. And the Pharisee agenda then comes out because when you get that type of righteousness in a critical mass amongst the population, they saw that as the key to establishing the kingdom. Yet Paul writes here that in all their efforts, this right standing before God had still not been reached. Instead, it was pagans, Gentiles, non-Jews, who through faith were obtaining this position before God through Christ. In, In other scripture, this is called imputed righteousness or that which is credited to us. One pursued it with works and fell short. The other one obtained it through faith and not their works. And I believe, as do the vast number of scholars I read, that the first three Beatitudes are the journey of regeneration and therefore the obtaining of this position. Getting those first three Beatitudes down gets you to that place. How do I know this? Because why otherwise would after the first beatitude would Jesus say, yours is the kingdom? That would be a pretty hollow promise if the kingdom wasn't yours to take, if you hadn't entered the kingdom. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who realise the poverty of their spirit. I love one Australian scholar describes the opposite of poverty. And he doesn't use the word prosperity, he doesn't use the word riches. He actually uses the word justice. The opposite of poverty, when we look at this, is justice. Things put right. When we realise the poverty of our spirit, we are then made right. We have something else. We receive the kingdom. We receive the justice of the kingdom. So we have righteousness that can be obtained through faith. But I believe Jesus is going a bit further than that when he talks about hungering for righteousness here. We have moral righteousness. This is spoken of in Scripture as a moral way of life under God. This image of righteousness spoke of the character and conduct of a person who pleased God. This had an expression in the Old Testament. When the kings were spoken of, you had righteous kings and you had evil kings. People who did right in the sight of God and people who didn't. There were celebrated righteous men in the Old Testament. Enoch walked faithfully for 365 years and then God took him from the earth. Noah, David, Job, all spoken of as righteous people. And the hunger for righteousness in the way Jesus is describing here is mainly to do with that idea. It's a craving to live righteously. To develop an overwhelming appetite to live the right way under God. But we are not saved because we live this way. 
We don't go to heaven going, I lived a righteous life. I chose to do those righteous things, therefore that puts me in good stead. No, 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 no. We live this way because we are saved. We've entered the kingdom. And that puts us in the perfect environment, not just for ambiguous heart change where we, that we kind of understand, but complete wholesale change inside and out. One scholar, R.T. Kendall, describes the kingdom of heaven as the realm of the unhindered and ungrieved spirit of God, where the spirit does his best work because he's not hampered. In that sort of kingdom, you are more aware of what the Spirit calls us to. And we understand that our salvation empowers us to do those things. Grace has a twofold definition. Unmerited favour is the common one we throw away, uh, throw around. It speaks of salvation by God's means, not ours. It's true. But we also understand it to be divine enablement. And we learn that salvation also fuels our ability to live out this type of righteousness. So it's not merely imputed righteousness that we kind of got credited in our account in there, but it's something that other scholars call implanted righteousness. When we consider righteousness in that light, we realise that Jesus wants us to crave a way of life that excels because salvation gives us power to live that way. You ever heard a testimony of someone who knows Jesus for a short time but a powerful time? Hear about people kicking addictions? I no longer wanted to do that and Jesus took those cravings away. Why? Because there's a hunger for something new in there. If that's the case, the just-get-by sort of life that some Christians live is less than what the Spirit empowers us for. The way we often refer to it as hell insurance, celestial fire insurance. That's not the way for believers. Instead, we spiritually and naturally become motivated to take our faith well beyond belief and make it a lifestyle. James 1 speaks clearly into this thinking. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word do and so deceive ourselves. Do what it says. Don't make it an ambiguous thing, but actually let it call you to action. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do it is like it, do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror, and after looking him at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. In other words, we're just not reflecting on our life and forgetting what we're reflecting on. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, in other words, Jesus and his commands, and continues on in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be what Jesus already calls us to become, blessed in what they do. 
The expectation for this righteous way of life in believers is very clear in the words of Christ. It's life abundantly, not just life to get by. It's not an impossible thing for believers because the unhindered kingdom gives us all the tools we need to live it out. The only fallible element in this whole process is us and the way we direct our appetite. Sadly, many people get this far in their Christian journey and through a different appetite, choose to go no further. But for those who choose right, there is then a third aspect of righteousness to consider as well, especially when it comes to announcing and demonstrating the kingdom that we've entered, which is the mission of the church. Righteousness is spoken of with a social aspect as well. Throughout the Old Testament, we read of an expectation of social righteousness. The ancient Hebrews knew this very, very, very well. There were regular reminders in the Old Testament and sadly, many rebukes regarding this because they were not doing this. There was a call for promoting civil rights for freeing oppressed people, for an honourable judicial system, for business integrity, for honour in the home and family. And although this righteousness that Jesus promotes is mainly of the moral kind, it is fair to suggest that in God's people, this hunger for righteousness will benefit and greatly affect the world around us as well. The late, great John Stott once wrote that Christians should also be committed to hunger for righteousness in the whole human community. James has a bit to say about that as well. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress, to keep oneself from being polluted from the world. So we've got moral conduct, we've got moral righteousness, but also a social one too. One that looks beyond our own needs and our own selves. He goes further in it in chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if people claim to have faith but have no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, and well, it's just well-wishing without action, but does nothing for their physical needs, what good is it? At the same, time, same way, faith by itself is not accompanied by, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. James understood that his faith and his righteousness and his way of life in Jesus was something that motivated him to put things right in the world around him. He had faith that, yeah, that got him right, but also fueled him and empowered him to put other things right too. Martin Luther, who actually believed that James shouldn't have made the cut of the Bible, (laughs) actually said this, the command to you is not to crawl into a corner or into the desert, but to run out if that is where you have been to offer your hands and your feet and your whole body and to wager everything you have and can do. 
This is a hunger and a thirst for righteousness that can never be curbed or stopped or sated. One that looks for nothing and cares for nothing except the accomplishment and maintenance of the right. Despising everything that hinders this end. If you cannot make the world completely pious, at least do what you can. Wow. So righteousness has a, a judicial or a legal perspective. You, can't, you can hunger for it in, a way, in the way that we, we hunger for something new in our life. But mainly we actually perceive this through faith. If the hunger comes about, it's because the Spirit has put that in us. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit, right? So the Spirit births a hunger in us to actually respond to the Gospel. Righteousness has a moral perspective. And I believe this is the focus of the Beatitude, a hunger to live the empowered, righteous life that the kingdom offers. Jackie Pullinger, she's a 72-year-old missionary in Hong Kong working with drug addicts. And she's been there since 1967, 1966. Said this, to the spiritual person, the supernatural seems natural. Love that. But it also has a social perspective. And this will be a natural outflow of the first two. Some people through faith will base the entirety of their faith on this third one. Some people will focus entirely. There are movements who highlight the need for the social righteousness of the world and for the church's involvement in that. And I think that's healthy. I think that's good that we need those things being met. But if we attract people to a social justice type thing without them actually getting to deal with the deeper needs of their life, we're actually putting the, the cart before the horse. If we want to influence people, if we want to make the world know, if we want the world to know this social righteousness, the righteousness of the kingdom of God, the reconciliation, the justice, we can only do that if we first know the kingdom. If we've entered and we know and we live out the values of the kingdom, only then can we affect for the kingdom. But if we're trying to do the third one without the other two, we can actually, we may actually be helpful to some but it would be to the detriment of ourself. Three forms of righteousness, hunger and thirst for righteousness, and look how wide scope that is. But then Jesus speaks to the disciples, for they will be filled. The idea of hunger and longing and filling is all throughout the Psalms. These are the songs that the first century Jews sung in their synagogues. These are the things they knew to sing about. The Jews knew about the filling that, the, that God could do. Psalm 84. The sons of Korah wrote this one. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Love my typo. Cry out for the living God. There's a crying, a yearning, and a hunger. 63.1, Psalm. God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land when there is no water. So obviously it's writing, I'm in a very physical location, but also it is reminding me of my spiritual need. There's hunger and there is thirst. Psalm 107. 
Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Those he redeemed from the hand of the foe. Those he gathered from the lands, from the east, west, north and south. Some wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty. Their lives ebbed away. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for humankind. For he satisfies the thirsty and he fills the hungry with good things. Both the Greek and the Hebrew ideas of being filled refer to those who are satisfied and abundantly or well and truly full. It's the difference between a quick morning coffee at Metro to tide you over or the 400 gram stone grill steak at the RSL. Both of which I've enjoyed in recent days. <laughs> well, I enjoyed one more than the other. Jesus is not talking about the coffee for brekkie variety here. It doesn't say what you're going to be filled with, although Jesus does flesh this out in further verses. John 6.35, here's now. I am the bread of life. I am. That's a God statement. The bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. God satisfies the hungry. I am the bread of life. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. He's tying in what the people knew that God could do. I am the one who satisfies. When we are made righteous, when we pursue righteousness, a satisfaction comes with that. And if you're not experiencing a satisfaction by being a Christian, if it's an internal hunger that you're going, I haven't found what I'm looking for yet, I would encourage you to look at your diet. Look at what cravings you are seeking to fill and how you're filling those. The kingdom has a now and not yet, now and then aspect to it. And so do the promises of being filled. Revelation 7. Talks about people in heaven who are actually being persecuted here. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation, however you want to picture that to come about. They have washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the centre before the throne will be their shepherd, and he will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That sounds like an eternal promise there. And in that setting, they will never hunger, and they will never thirst. Hold on to the end with this hunger. Hold on to the end with this appetite. And no satisfaction now and then. Those that hunger and thirst for righteousness in all its fullness will be filled and satisfied in their spirits. Now in our knowledge of Jesus, now in our restored relationship with the Father, now in the reconciliation that we know, now since we have entered the kingdom through faith, now, and then in eternity when the kingdom is fully realized on a renewed earth, 
there will be the fullness of satisfaction forever in His presence. The world offers a fast food, MSG, laden way of life. And it will leave you craving more and hating yourself for indulging in it. But Jesus calls us to crave the righteousness that He wants to. For out of that we can be satisfied both now and in eternity. I'm going to call the band up. It's time to worship the Lord and reflect. Next week, the Beatitudes will look at outward expression. But for now, I think we need to stop and ponder something in our hearts. This Beatitude. What are we craving within ourselves? What are we devoting our spiritual hunger to? We can dive headfirst into a lot of life's delicacies out there, but you'll find it won't nourish or enrich the way you hoped it would. Who remembers the ads when you first saw that McDonald's was offering healthy options? Who just laughed hysterically at that? Come and get a healthy option and yet wonder why we've still got the spare tyre. A sinful life offers enlightenment and quick fixes and even regret-free outcomes, yet it never delivers on what it promises. A hunger for this sort of life will leave us unsatisfied in the long run and will leave us craving more. That is why we go on downward spirals in our sin. But a hunger for righteousness does the exact opposite. It leads to satisfaction. Although we can't explain it, it works. It leads to eternal satisfaction as well. Eternity in the kingdom. And that seems like a pretty good thing to crave for me. One writer said that there is perhaps no greater secret of progress in Christian living than a healthy, hearty, spiritual appetite. And I believe we need to take stock of the things we have an appetite for and adjust if necessary. Every believer who repents and switches allegiance from the agenda of themselves and the world to the agenda of the kingdom of God should develop a craving for the things that this kingdom stands for. If we go through the first three Beatitudes, we should at that point realise that there's not much of us left in there. Our power's gone. We've emptied ourselves so that the kingdom can do its work. Having just enough Jesus to get by, to get into eternity, sounds great. And may even be a theological possible. But generally, people who engage in faith that way rarely go the distance. It's like, I'm going on a diet, but I'm just going to make my large fries a small one. And get a Diet Coke. because they haven't lost their appetite for the world and they wonder why they're not satisfied with Jesus. Imputed righteousness empowers us to live out implanted righteousness. 
where the appetites change and the satisfaction and filling comes in. And after that, the world benefits too because our righteousness goes social as well. So let me ask you this one question as we, re- as we, as we reflect before worship here. Would you close your eyes and just make it you and Jesus for a minute? And let me ask you eight words. What are your cravings saying about your faith? What needs work? What does the Spirit need to do today? We are in the presence of the kingdom of God. We're in it. Through Jesus we can enter it and we know it. Let's get ourselves to that place where we are in the unhindered, ungrieved presence of the Spirit. And let that Spirit do a work in us. I'll ask it again. What are your cravings saying about your faith? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be 